when the wicked and the proud men, as we also were, as were described in Psalm 10, arose in the church in Ephesus after Paul had left and Timothy was there. He wrote to Timothy to address that, and we read that in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 to 20. 1 Timothy, starting at verse 3. It's on page 991. Hear the word of God. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Beloved Church of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, in Ephesians chapter 4, the apostle taught the leaders that they were gifts of the ascended Lord Jesus Christ 
that were given to equip the saints in their ministry of building each other up. When servant leadership is done well, it is a beautiful thing. But when the leaders swerve from the gospel and the order that God has revealed, it is very dangerous for the church. From the first chapter of Timothy, we see that sadly, certain unqualified persons who imposed themselves on the people as their leaders in the established church at Ephesus, they began to cause a lot of damage. And apparently it is a common tendency among men and leaders, and we see the same thing, uh, we saw the same thing that had, had been happening in the churches where Titus was serving, as we read in that chapter. These men We see from verse 3, they lost sight of Paul's teaching. Verse 4, we see they swerved away from the divine administration, the stewardship of the gospel. And verse 6 shows us that they carried out their task without love, without a pure heart, a good conscience, and even without sincere faith. Two men named Hymenaeus and Alexander had wandered so far from the order that God revealed that they were beyond reaching, beyond rescuing, and and they shipwrecked their faith by their blasphemy. The whole passage today is about how to stop bad leaders from driving the church off the road like a car going into the ditch or a ship swerving off its course and, and crashing against the shore. In the Holy Spirit's instruction for Timothy through the Apostle Paul, we see three emphases that stand out in our text as we go through it. We can see at the beginning that Timothy is to promote the understanding of the stewardship from God that is by faith. We'll look at that in the first point. That's verse 4. And second is to teach the proper use of the law See that in verse 8 and following, and we'll see that in the second point. And then he is to put all the focus on the gospel of grace to undeserving sinners. You see that in the third point in verse 15 then. And I preach to you the gospel of Jesus Christ under this theme, God commands the church to wage war against selfish vanity by teaching God's plan, his law, and his grace. So first then, God commands the church to wage war against selfish vanity by teaching God's plan. If you look at your Bibles, you have them open in front of you, you see in verse 4 that the distinction is being made between speculations and stewardship from God that is by faith. And maybe you look at the word stewardship and you wonder, what is What does that mean here? It's not a very common word in this context, and it wasn't a common word in the context, not even in the New Testament in the Greek. And it's a very unique word that Paul chose and could see that he was trying to make a very specific point. He wanted to find just the right word to contrast this this proliferation of speculation that was attacking or affecting, hindering the church. 
Now the word stewardship has several possible translations, words that could, we could use to translate it. When we put it together, it helps. It could mean administration or training or state of being arranged or plan. The apostle here is presenting the picture of an overall arrangement that God established as part of the created order. It appears that the word plan serves us best as we seek to understand and apply this text. The word plan is in Paul's mind. It stands parallel to Paul's instruction in Ephesians 1 verse 11 that all believers have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. He speaks similarly in Ephesians 3 verses 7 and following when Paul explains that everything that we preach is according to the eternal purpose that God has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, it's Paul's pointing to that overall plan, the, the outworking of God's will. The word then gives us a picture of, of a road on a map or of a, a course that is set for a ship to travel on. The starting point and the underlying assumption of our text and that Timothy had to bring across to the church is that God is a king. He's sovereign over all things. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. There is an order in creation. There are principles, creational principles. There is such a thing as obedience and disobedience. We are not floating around in a relativistic society without any foundation. But there is a divine stewardship, a plan, an arrangement, so that we don't even have to start to think that life is nothing more than a guessing game. This is an important starting point to the instruction that, that Timothy is to give to certain people. So Paul says, there is a stewardship from God that is by faith. There is an order that comes from God in his revelation to his people that is believed on by faith. The Holy Spirit urges his church to understand the foundations of their task in the revealed plan of God to believe and to trust that his plan is sufficient for our lives. You can see the, how Paul emphasizes this already in Acts chapter 20 when he met the Ephesian elders when they were still fairly new and faithful. He met them on, on the beach and he told them in Acts 20 verses 20 to 21 that he did not hesitate to preach anything that would be helpful for them as he called the Jews and Greeks to turn to God in repentance and to put their faith in Jesus Christ. The church where Timothy was now serving heard preaching on the whole will of God. There was no need for anything else. And at that time then too, Paul warned them 
that certain men who were compared to savage wolves would arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them as they attacked the flock of God. You can read that in Acts 20, verse 30. And so by the time that Timothy came to the church at Ephesus, the exact thing that Paul had been warning against was being done. The church was in danger because the leaders turned to a different doctrine. Doctrine which was outside the stewardship, the plan that God revealed was believed on in faith. We read, we read about that. Verses 4 and following, we read about myths and endless genealogies which promote useless speculations. The word myths may be a reference to apocryphal, those false writings, or other alternate explanations about reality when people turn to, to legends about creation instead of God's word about creation. Or it could be particular Jewish traditions that were being added on to the basic foundation of the gospel. That seems to be what Titus chapter 1 is pointing to. Then we read the word genealogies. Genealogies are those, those big lists of names that are very important in some cultures for determining a person's place, but also for determining their status through the importance of family lines. And that may also be the background of verse 7, where people were desiring to be teachers of the law, although they didn't even understand the law. They didn't claim the office because of their faith or because they loved the flock, but because they thought they were more important. The word of God was being questioned as the only reliable source of information for the church. The men's personal status and position was being elevated. The family name became important. And the gospel was being sacrificed on the altar of selfish ambition and vanity. This is a long way off from the goal of sincerity and love in the church and especially among leaders. And so the Holy Spirit reminds the church, and, and we can hear this today too, reminds the church that the plan of God and the order of things that he revealed in his word, that leads to love. It leads to love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The very reason that Paul wanted Timothy to warn certain persons is because he, he wants them to experience what God's plan brings. And when leaders who, who swerve from the stewardship from God that calls for love, when men who are in positions of authority wander away from the plan of God that is by faith, they do not serve the church in any way. Vain discussion. Vain discussion is, is like feeding the body of Christ cotton candy every day with the result that members of Christ's body stay weak. 
They, they stay in, in this ignorance of God's plan and his revelation. Speculation is a result of lack of knowledge. Confident assertions about what God says without ever studying a word of it. It's, it's Paul calls it a, a sign of a lack of faith. Ulterior motives rather than a pure heart and, and love for the flock. And the words of the Holy Spirit then come to us loud and clear. When the authority of the Word of God is revealed, will, when that is compromised, either by a, a lack of proper and ongoing study, or by adding in all other teaching, other doctrines, or myths, explanations of authority, claims to certain status, as if some are more deserving than others in the church, this is very dangerous for the church. It's very dangerous for us. So God calls the leaders in the church. He calls the men. He calls the fathers in their home. He calls the elders and the minister, the deacons, to teach God's plan as it is revealed in the scriptures. Not to waste our time and our position in vain discussion and speculations. To stay on the road. And then he tells us that when we swerve from it, even leaders in established churches can shipwreck their faith together with the people they, they drag along with them. It's blasphemy, says our text. God has shown his love for us in Jesus Christ. We have a marvelous revelation, a clear plan. He calls us to, to hold to that, to preach God's plan, and also to preach God's law. You see in verse 7 that men were desiring to be teachers of the law, but they had not been called legitimately to the office they also did not understand the things about which they were making confident assertions. Self-acclaimed experts were a problem in the established church at Ephesus. And as I see also today, many people throwing the confessions aside or throwing the, the solid preaching aside to, to swallow up the teachings of any self-acclaimed theologian on social media. In the blogs, we see they continue to be a problem today. Although people were making confident assertions as if they were experts, Paul says they didn't understand what they were talking about. And you could tell by the way they were using the law. They were abusing the law. They were using the law unlawfully. They didn't have any credentials except the gift of fooling others with their vain words to satisfy their own selfish vanity. And as a result, God's law was being twisted, maybe even used to, to make the, the false leaders look better. 
and stop, stop serving as a tool to expose whatever is contrary to sound doctrine, as you see Paul summarize that in verse 10. The Holy Spirit commands the church to bring an end to this mockery of God's law by reaffirming the place of the law in the worship of the church. The law confirms and reveals the order, the plan that God has revealed, like we saw in, in the first point. The law expresses God's stewardship of creation, how it is arranged. And it shows us also the boundaries of his kingdom. For this reason, it is something that the leaders must understand so that the just in Christ are not condemned and so that those who need to repent are not embraced in the church without ever knowing the love of Jesus Christ. And once again, the Holy Spirit urges submission to God's way and God's word, like we sang in Psalm 119, verse 1, our desire, submission to God's word, rather than just doing whatever we feel like doing or saying. The standard of God's word is, is clear and it's very good. We must use God's law to expose lawlessness, to rid the church of vain discussions which do not help people find the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. If you look at verses 9 to 10, you see a summary that fits quite well beside the Ten Commandments. Begins with our sins in relationship with God, and it ends with sins in our relationship against our neighbor. That's how the Ten Commandments are divided as well. And the first word pair, lawless and disobedient, you see that in verse 9, lawless and disobedient, they're related to the first commandment, which talks about people who reject the one true God to serve other gods. The next word pair, ungodly and sinners, it's related to the second commandment, worshiping the one God in a different way, a sinner, sin mean to sin means to miss the mark. Unholy would be the failure to recognize God as holy, misuse his name. And profane is refusing to allow his holiness to enter your life. We can see by for example, not keeping and honoring the Lord's name. And then the Holy Spirit shows how the law declares that people who break the fifth commandment by striking their fathers and mothers, the sixth commandment by murdering, and the seventh commandment by general sexual immorality, within and outside of marriage, and specifically by men who practice homosexuality, all these are, are living outside the order that God had established, his plan, his arrangement, stewardship. And following the order of the commandments, it would appear that the word enslavers is related to the eighth commandment, and the ninth is summarized as liars and perjurers, followed by the tenth, which is summarized, which summarizes the law by touching that, that heart that persists in living contrary to sound doctrine. 
So Paul is teaching that when the truth is distorted, then people use the law to burden those whom Christ has redeemed from the law. And at the same time, they set the guilty free from the obligations of the law so that they can never see their need for Christ Jesus alone. And in this way, both the just and the guilty are, were being driven away from Christ alone. And they all were being made to depend more and more on the opinion and the promises and the speculations of power-hungry human leaders. All this promotes vanity among the leaders in established churches. And the grace of God becomes less and less celebrated. And you see this infiltrating the church. You see it infiltrating your own minds and your own hearts. Many times you may have heard it as well that people boast about certain beloved people in their families and, and circles of friends that, that sang in the choir at church or made a mission trip or two, or served as elder and deacon, he even served as an elder, we muse, as if this earns a better spot for that person in the kingdom of heaven, as if the law didn't reveal that we are all equally sinners before a most holy God. And so those who preach the law, they, they understand that there is no room for selfish vanity and confidence in our own works when God's law is clearly taught. God's church includes the weekly reading of the commandments in her worship services to make it very clear who is the king in this place and to whom we must submit. The law is a part of the plan and stewardship from God that we believe in faith. And that law reflects his amazing love for it allows us to also live in accordance with that gospel that Paul was able to preach. You can see that in verse 11. The gospel of the glory of the blessed God. When men and women begin to think that God needs them in order to have a healthy church, when it becomes more important to have our own way in the church than to let God's word speak, when selfish ambition and man's, man's uh, blubbering and blabbering, and when it fills up all our time, the Holy Spirit commands us, preach grace. And grace alone. And God commands the church to wage war against selfish vanity by teaching God's grace. And as we look at the text we see it, it strikes us how Paul's perspective and Paul's attitude concerning leadership is very different than that of the leaders who only thought about themselves as they wallowed in their selfish vanity, wanting to be leaders even though they didn't understand what they were talking about. Why are we here today? And what are the leaders to teach in their words and in their deeds? Verse 15 hits the nail on the head. It goes straight to the core of the gospel. The only reason we want to be here today, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am 
the foremost. It's very clear that in our text, these words point first to Paul and to Paul's situation. Paul was very clear that he served the kingdom according to the command of God. You see that in verses 11 and 12? That God entrusted him with a service in the kingdom, judging him faithful in spite of his terrible history of blasphemy, persecution, insolent opposition, and ignorance. You see that in verse 13. Paul calls himself the foremost of sinners. It could be like saying, I'm the worst sinner of all. But foremost can also mean the, the first man, the man who's leading a charge against Christ's church. Paul calls himself the, the king or the boss, the CEO of the persecution movement. And he recognizes in saying this that by bringing him to conversion, Jesus chose the most unlikely person imaginable. The, 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 big, the big powerful man in charge of the whole persecution against the church was converted. What a testimony of the power and the patience and the love of Jesus Christ. What a wonderful way to show the world and all those whom Christ would call and who were about to believe, verse 16, that we are saved by grace alone. The law exposes who we are. It, it condemns us. But the grace of God tells us that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. What a powerful way to also stop the the persecution of the church. You take away the, the big guy in charge. Convert him to the faith. At the same time, that general instruction, you can see that in verse 15, it's a repeated phrase. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that indicates the gospel of Christ's mercy and Christ's patience to all undeserving sinners who believe in Jesus Christ. The gospel is that this verse does not just apply to Paul, but to everyone who humbles the knee before Jesus Christ. You may not have persecuted the church, but when you hear the law preached faithfully as a clear revelation of God's revealed order from the foundation of the world, you can know that you are a sinner, that you need God's grace. And the gospel comes booming into your life. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That includes you. That includes all of us. This is the message that the leaders of God's church must defend. They must proclaim. And it has nothing to do with speculations about words or the importance of people, their place in this congregation, but it has everything to do with our King, Jesus Christ. Jesus is our Lord. He is the center of the church. He is the center of our life. He is God's answer my rebellion, to my rebellion and my sin. 
He expresses God's undeserved mercy and an overflowing grace to undeserving sinners who are given faith and love. And brothers and sisters, we can feel the, the wave of his grace pouring out upon us. We were so saddened when we saw our rebellion and sin and we can be so happy when we see his grace overflowing into our lives. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The law tells you that you are a sinner, but God's plan tells you that you are included in this grace if you believe in Jesus Christ. It calls every one of us to submit ourselves to Christ Jesus. If you are a visitor in our midst and you do not know the Lord Jesus, you need to know the good news, the gospel. He came to save sinners. Everyone who bends the knee before him. God has patience. Verse 16 says, perfect patience. Even with the most blasphemous, the most insolent opponent of the church, even leaders of those who persecute Christians. Because our God, the God we celebrate, the God we worship, is a God of grace. And every Sunday we hear that beginning phrase, grace, mercy, and peace to those who are in Christ Jesus. And Paul is insistent that this message of grace must continue to be explained and taught. And so the gospel of the glory of the blessed God that God entrusted into Paul's hands was later entrusted into Timothy's hands. We read about some prophecies perhaps at the time of his ordination, perhaps when Paul met him in Derby, that indicated that Timothy would be the evangelist who would wage war against false teachers in the newly planted churches. When we look around today, we see that Timothy was fighting just one battle in a, in a huge war that can, Satan continues to wage against the church. And so... Paul's exhortation to Timothy reaches our ears as well. Timothy didn't defeat Satan. He didn't finish the battle. It's here today. It's in our midst. May we wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. May we never fall into the trap of selfish vanity and so shipwreck our faith, but rather may we Hold the course, stay on the road of God's plan revealed in the Holy Scriptures. May our lives, our church, be characterized by that marvelous song that the Holy Spirit gives us in verse 17 to the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Our God is eternal. Almighty, holy, and wise, there is none beside him. May his name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, be the one that is constantly, joyfully praised and worshipped in your lives today and every day. Amen.